Thanks, Steve. Well, uh, it's great to be with you again, and uh, like I said, my name's Andrew, and it really is a joy to be gathered together this morning, this last Sunday of 2018. Uh, I want to add my welcome to Rowan's as well. If you are new or newish amongst us, you may be visiting uh, in Auckland over the summer for holidays. It's great that you've decided to come out uh, to church this morning. Uh, How was Christmas for everyone? Did everyone have a good Christmas? Most people get something, some sort of gift. Uh, I got tickets to um, the musical Aladdin, which I'm quite excited about. Uh, It's definitely probably my favorite Disney movie, so I'm keen to see it on stage. Um, But but we're here this summer uh, thinking through the defining moments in our lives. Now, for, for most of us, In fact, all of us, we have some form of defining moment, whether they be good or bad. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but um, perhaps uh, if if you've moved into a flat previously, uh, that that first flat you moved into was a defining moment for you as you learned what it was like to live with people that weren't your family. Uh, Perhaps if you've had kids, it was the first uh, kid that arrived and and that whole birthing process, and enough said. But um, perhaps it was your first speeding ticket, or uh, perhaps it was... The first time you disobeyed your parents and found out the wrath of your your dad. Uh, Either way, we have defining moments in our lives. Uh, But this summer, we want to share with you some of the moments that have been significant to us. Uh, Sections of scripture that God has used to show us more of his character during periods of growth. And these are the kinds of passages that we underline in our Bibles or or we put up on our wall or on the back of the toilet door. it's been a, a great joy just to hear from Ray and Steph and the way God's been working in their lives. Today, I want to walk us through a passage that was helpful for me, helpful in understanding what uh, sets Christianity as an exclusive religion, to, to understand this costly grace that has liberated and purified a people for God. So how about we pray that God would help us, help me, uh, unpack his word today uh, as we dive into Titus chapter 2. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us this morning. And as we reflect back over the year that's been, we ask that you would help us to see how you've been shaping us throughout our lives uh, and to be reflecting on the way that you continue to shape us more and more into your son's likeness. As we come to your word now, uh, we pray that my words would be your words, that you would help us to understand what you're saying in this chapter as we go through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I grew up in a Christian household here in Auckland. Uh, I'm the oldest of four siblings, and I I loved going to church. Uh, I'm thankful for parents that took me to church and showed me what it was like uh, to live as a Christian. But I remember late in high school being challenged about the exclusivity of Christianity. Did I really believe that Jesus is uniquely different or or superior to any other person or belief system? Uh, Is faith in Christ just another option of spiritual smorgasbord set before us? Uh, See, I was wrestling with the argument that perhaps I was just a Christian because I was brought up in a first world Western country. And so the question I was forced to consider is, why Christianity? What makes Jesus different to other religious heroes? And it was around this time that I found myself reading through Titus, and I was struck by the verses, particularly verses 11 to 14 in chapter 2. And for me, that was a defining moment. And so today, I want to help us and show you what these four verses helped me to see about the significance of Jesus. I want us to see how compelling the grace of God really is. 
Now, to help orientate us, uh, Titus, just quickly, is, a, is a, a guy that was traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys, with Timothy, Timothy and the others. Uh, during one of their missionary journeys, they ended up on the island of Crete. I think there might be a, a slide on screen for that. Uh, little island in the Mediterranean. I haven't been there, but um, I hear it's beautiful. But as they shared the good news of Jesus, new communities were formed, and believers uh, formed churches, and these churches were established. And as the missionary journeys continued to expand, Paul and Timothy, well, they left Crete and they went on to Ephesus. But Titus, he remained, and, and he was to continue putting these new churches into order by establishing elders in every town. But after, after a little while, false teachers had started to infiltrate the church, and they began begun to teach a different doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that this false teaching was disrupting whole households of the faith. And so Paul, he writes this letter to, to Titus to instruct and encourage him to stand firm for the truth. And the whole of chapter 2 uh, is bracketed in verse 1 and 15 by this imperative to, to proclaim, to, to hold out the true doctrine of grace, because it impacts the way that we live as Christians. And Paul does not com- command Titus merely just to teach the sound doctrine, but he, he must proclaim it, proclaim these things, with, uh, things consistent with sound doctrine. So he's to live it out as well. And that's why we read the whole chapter this morning. He spends verses 2 to 10 explaining how different kinds of Christians are to behave and to act. You've got the, the older men and the older woman. You've got the youth. I'm glad the youth are in this morning so they can hear this. But the, the younger woman and the younger men, you've got the slaves there. All of this, though, is underpinned by the four verses starting at verse 11. And that's where I want to hone in today. This is the, the sound teaching and the, the sound teaching and Christian living go hand in hand. That the, the gospel belief is tied to gospel behavior. And you can't separate the two. See, Paul wants the church to fully comprehend the costly grace that has liberated and purified a people for God. And it's costly because it's a gift of sacrifice. So pick it up with me at verse 11 and, and read says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Grace, a free gift that is undeserved. It's the undeserved gift given to us by God, and it's the person and work of his son, Jesus. Jesus Christ, who was willingly sacrificed on that Roman cross for us, who brought our salvation, brought about salvation for all people. He died that those who trust in him might live. And it is this gospel of grace, this grace of God, that teaches Christians how to live. It's foundational to understanding Christianity. Now, as a side note here, some people misapply verse 11 there. They take it to mean that the grace of God saves all people, as if God's grace guaranteed that everyone would be saved. But I think it's helpful to observe in the previous verses that I mentioned that Paul was talking about different kinds of people. And so I take it that the grace of God is available to all kinds of people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. In Galatians 3.28, we get a similar theme where we, we see that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's more, the, the scope of God's grace is is not the thrust of this passage. 
Paul is not trying to tell you how many people are saved. He's trying to tell you that uh, this is what it looks like to live as a Christian. Because as we'll see, the grace of God necessarily has an effect on human living. Regardless of who we are, where we come from, it's a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, uh, as a family, uh, at this time of the year, Christmas, uh, we've got a growing family. I said I was the oldest of four, but now um, all my siblings are also married or engaged. And so Christmas can be a busy time of the year. So rather than buying presents for everyone, I don't know if you do this as well, we just have a secret Santa. So you don't know who you're buying for, but you just, 50 bucks, buy one gift, give it to them, job done. Uh, Each year, though, we come up with a theme. Uh, And the other year... Someone thought it would be a good idea to use second-hand items as a theme. And so we, so we gave each other second-hand items for Christmas. And it was pretty funny and pretty dodgy all at the same time. Um, but the point is, is that the gift of God is not just some second-hand item that he dishes out. He, he goes to extreme lengths to send his son into the world. Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, really did step into history. He grew up to become a man. He faced temptations just like this, just like us, but yet he did not sin. And so he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the one who laid down his life for his people. I've been uh, listening to an autobiography uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer lately, and this is what Dietrich calls costly grace. Costly grace is costly because it's cost God the life of his son. And what has cost God, much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, he says, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And this this is the compelling thing about Christianity. Jesus is a savior who reaches out and redeems us. He takes the punishment uh, of death that we deserve. If you, if you scroll down or look down at verse 14, uh, you'll see that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Uh, all other religions are about what we can do to attain or reach perfection, uh, to, to attain righteousness. But Jesus comes and selflessly lays down his life for us that we may be made right with God. Did you hear that? The God of the universe has stepped into history to save you, to save me. By his grace, he sacrificially gave himself for us. And Paul is clear here. He sees that this is a work of Christ as doing something for us, something for us that we could not do on our own. It's kind of like if you're at the beach, uh, hot summer's day, you're out at Murawai, uh, you're catching the surf, but you get caught in a rip. Uh, if a lifeguard comes out and rescues you, that's kind of nice, they'll bring you back, they'll return you to your family, kind of job done. Uh, but imagine if the lifeguard was your father. How much more would he be willing to go to the lengths to save you as his child? And that's, that's what we see here with God. He's Stepped out in faith and uh, stepped out in history so much that he sent his son to die for us. And this is the gift of sacrifice that is costly grace, costly to God. And so, Christians, we're a people that are set free by the payment of a price. 
But as such, we're also a people who have been liberated from lawlessness. And see, on the one hand, the gospel of grace affects our present behavior. It affects it by focusing on God's undeserved gift for us in the past. That because of God's grace to us in Jesus, we're liberated from lawlessness. We're freed from the bondage of sin. And since we're no longer a slave to sin, by God's grace, Paul tells us that we can change our behavior. This grace of God works itself out in two areas, according to verse 12. You see that you have the restraint of ungodliness, and then you have the promotion of godly living as well. Verse 12 reads like this, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible or self-controlled, righteous and godly way in the present age. So, firstly, grace disciplines us to deny both sinful deeds and sinful desires. To deny godlessness and worldly lusts. God's grace, inevitably though, turns sinners away from evil, away from evil and towards godly living. And so this should be an encouragement to us that that whatever particular sins we may be struggling with, that God, by His grace, can instruct us to overcome it. Not just deliver us from sin, but but to turn from sin and to to live life a life of purity. This practice of discipline is to assist in the development of a person's ability to, to make appropriate choices. So, Don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that Christians become sinless, but there is a very real sense in which Christians should sin less. Because we're not passive spectators in God's work in our lives. We don't just sit back and see what He does. No, no, we're active participants as God by His Spirit convicts and changes us. Our little daughter, Ali, she's two years old, um, and having a child means that as a parent you have that great responsibility of, of teaching them stuff, of instructing them. Uh, it's, it's baby steps with kids, as some of you know, but this coming year, 2019, we're hoping to transition Ali out of a cot and into a bed. Uh, it's going to be a challenge, I think. Uh, she will no doubt have a tendency to get out of bed. Uh, but with enough training, I hope, and in a short period of time, she'll learn the discipline of staying in bed. Uh, With enough instruction, that is what my outcome is hopefully going to be. And that's the same sense that we've got here in verse 12. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the grace of God trains us, or it instructs us, how to live God's way, just like a father instructs the child. Uh, It will teach us to say no to godlessness, and worldly lusts. It will teach us to develop a habit of godly decisions that say yes to God. Sure, there'll be stumblings along the way, but the grace of God is sufficient, and God, in His grace, continues to help us strive for that. And so, as I was considering the validity of Christianity, and as I was reading these verses, this is what struck a chord with me. This was a defining moment. You see, in contrast to other religions, Christianity is saying that you can't ever live God's way without His grace. It's impossible. It's impossible to live in a self-controlled manner apart from God's grace. Because self-control is different to self-effort, which is different to sort of self-achievement or to self-motivation. 
The point of such instruction is to teach us how to live lives marked by ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance and faith. So I wonder for you today, this morning, how are you going with repentance? Are you regularly confessing your sin to God? Are we keeping each other accountable as a church to the sins that can so easily ensnare us? Because the question really is, is our gospel belief tied to our gospel behavior? And so if, if the gospel of grace affects our present behavior by focusing on God's undeserved favor in the past of what God's done for us through Jesus on the cross... Uh, the, on the other hand, the gospel also promotes godly living by focusing on the future. Uh, for we are a people being purified while we wait for the reappearing of Jesus. You see that in verse 13 and 14. Take a look. It says this, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse or purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Now, this phrase here in verse 13, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, this is hugely significant. Uh, I didn't recognize it wholly when I was in high school, but much more clearly now. Uh, it's significant because it puts, both, it puts Jesus as both God and Savior. Jesus' identity is expressed as both created God and divine Savior in the one sentence. And both of these nouns, God and Savior, are attributed to the one person. The only other place where this happens in the Bible is in the opening verse of Peter's second letter. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this, "...to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ." Again, no other religion in the world claims that the God of the universe would write themselves into the story of humanity in order to save them from eternal judgment. Both Paul and Peter have connected these two dots. And this undergirds the very point that Paul is making to Titus, and therefore to us. This is the grace of God. Friends, you, you can't reject Jesus as God, but still have him as your get-out-of-hell-free saviour. Uh, the, the two go hand in hand. And so the key to understanding the grace of God is to recognize the divinity of Jesus as God. Now, notice it doesn't say that God is making many peoples for his own possession in verse 14. I wanted to just quickly point out that it's singular, not plural. This is another aspect that's exclusive to Christianity in a sense. There is only one God. There is only one mediator and therefore one people. God is making a people for himself. And so 1 Peter 2.9 tells us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And here it is, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In our individualized society, this is a helpful corrective to keep in perspective. That God is jealous for the souls of humanity. He will stop at nothing to redeem many people for his kingdom. And so God is and will continue to purify a people for himself. A people who are truly his. A people for his own possession. Which means that church will grow. 
As more people are captivated by the grace of God, they'll be drawn into communities of believers that we call churches. We need to be prepared for that. We need to be okay with that. We need to get excited about the effects of the grace of God here in Auckland. Even though it looks dismal around us and we can often think, oh, this isn't going to happen or that that person's too far gone, the grace of God is more powerful than we can even imagine. And so, as we've, having seen how uh, focusing on the, both the past and the future appearances affect our behavior, uh, Paul touches on what godly living should look like in this present age. And his logic is basically this. He's basically saying that because people are saved by grace and they're liberated from lawlessness, they have to be growing in purity, and therefore they will be eager or zealous to do good works. Verse 14. That is, that living for King Jesus in this present age is also to include being others-focused. At Jesus' first coming, he inaugurated his kingdom. Uh, but he's, he's ascended, and we have the Holy Spirit with us now. Uh, he's gone to prepare a place for us, John tells us, and when he returns, it will be the consummation of his kingdom. And so, friends, we live in this tension between these two appearances. There's an overlapping of ages. There's the present age, and there's the age to come. A new age has already dawned. It's an age with a good and gracious king who rules rightly over his kingdom. And yet we are in this tension of this now but not yet, that this present age still continues for a time. A time where God is at work making for himself a people who are truly his. A people who embrace the salvation that's on offer to them through Jesus Christ. And so this is not a a test to see how good we can become in this life. It's not some time-wasting exercise to while away the days until Jesus' return. No, this is an opportunity both to grow in Christ-likeness in anticipation of the hope we have in our great God and Saviour. But it's not just that. It's also about personal growth and maturity and purity. It's about a desire for living God's way with an eagerness to do God's work. And so you see in verse 14 again, to cleanse himself for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. I wonder what does it look like to be truly God's possession. Paul tells us that it's a desire for godly living and an eagerness to do good works to others. Both of these are impossible without the grace of God, both of which are evidence of the grace of God in our lives. I take it that the implication is that Christian living in an ungodly way is a clear sign that either we don't, under, don't fully understand these things or we don't actually believe them. It's, it's the implication that if we get so caught up on being holy individuals, working on our own sanctification, our own purity, rather than growing a holy people, then we've only really half understood the gospel-required behavior that Paul's talking about here. Godly living is foundationally dependent on sound doctrine. And so if we get our doctrine right then our godly living, both as individuals and as a church community, will also be right. And it's this nugget of sound doctrine that Paul unpacks for us in these verses that just hit me 
back in high school and was super compelling for me. And so, as you can imagine, uh, as I saw the significance of what God has done and continues to do throughout history because of his grace, I may not have experienced other religions. I may have been blessed to grow up in a Western Judeo-Christian culture here in New Zealand to some extent. I may have been privileged to grow up in a Christian family with parents who taught me how to read the Bible. But as I wrestled with that claim that I'm just a product of my nurtured environment, I came to see that the God of the Bible has given us something remarkable in the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And I want to keep growing to live a godly life in a manner worthy of that gospel. That day, the grace of God became clearer to me. And I hope today it has for you too. How about we pray? Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so thankful for the lengths to which you would go to send your son, that you would give him sacrificially for us, such cost, Father. And yet help us as we live in light of that grace, as we live knowing that we are liberated from sin, help us to grow in our godliness towards you. May we be a people who are purified for you, that are seeking to live lives that bring you glory in the way that we conduct good works towards others. And we ask that you would continue to work in each of our lives in the year ahead. Help us to be all the more captivated by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.